Good morning, everyone. Hey, Buddhist. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Hopefully, you got an extra hour of sleep. Probably not if you have a newborn baby or small children. <laughs> Our kids still woke up.
In Exodus 28 through 11, we have the fourth commandment given to us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or of the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If you would all join with me on, as we pray this prayer of confession. Almighty and merciful God, the fountain of every blessing, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, often we have sinned against you and broken your law. We have neglected to set aside time to worship you in public and in private. Forgive us, Lord, and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, be gracious to us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us life to serve you. song today. I think I've quoted it one time before. Um, it's called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. There's four verses, and you'll notice a lot of language from Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, and you'll just see all this imagery that's bombarded. And this is one of the first songs that we've done that's in a minor key. So it's got sort of a song of lament about it. You know, a lot of songs that we sing are, you know, very triumphant and happy and gleeful, and this one is very minor, somber, sober. And you'll see as the imagery that comes up throughout this hymn, why it is this way. The first verse talks about this Christ who is the son of David, yet the Lord of David, this long-expected prophet, is rejected by men. That he's crucified on a tree, in the second verse, we see that even his friends abandon him, that his enemies spit on him. This only perfect man that had ever walked the earth, no one would come to help him. But ultimately, it was not any of those things that were the most, the greatest suffering. It was the wrath and justice of God that was poured out on sin that was the greatest suffering. As Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In the third verse, we see that it's ultimately that this, when we see the greatness of the suffering of Christ and the agony that he went through on the cross, that we get to see our sin and its weight and wickedness more clearly, that we can't view it as a light thing. And then the fourth verse ends with ultimately this perfect lamb that was slain for sinners, that when we put our faith and hope in him, that we can't be put to shame that if our hope is built on his blood and righteousness, then we have a lasting hope. So sing this with me.
that was, that's a rich, a rich hymn. And there's something about the minor key that just drives it home, too. In Hebrews 4, 7 through 10, it reads, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we do honor your word by setting aside a day of rest, a day of Sabbath, a day where our main focus is you. We thank you, Father, for your direction. We thank you, Lord, that we are joined across the world by other churches, by other body of believers who share the same faith of the one true living God. Father, we ask that you would be with us this, uh, this morning as Kendall brings your word, as he brings home the, the, uh, the importance of what the Sabbath is the intricacies of what that entails. Ready our hearts, Lord, for your word and your message. May your spirit have uh, his way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In our Confession of Faith of 1689, if you would join me all, all of you join me as we read this uh, of divine providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Amen. Amen. Let me see you this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, we'll be returning to our study through the Gospel of John. Um, it was great to get to spend those couple weeks talking about law and gospel and taking a break from John. And it's great to go through books of the Bible. We get to see, you know, patterns set up and themes and just walk through the text. But it's also good to step back and think about um, all of Scripture. Hopefully we saw that in those last three weeks. You know, it wasn't just on the law and the gospel, but hopefully as you read your Bibles at home or are thinking about the Scriptures, you can apply those grids to the scripture and start to read through those lenses and help make sense of the covenants in the scripture, the life of the Christian and all those things. So, so taking a break, it's good to kind of recap some of what we've gone through in the Gospel of John. We started with a prologue where all these themes are set up in the beginning. And we're really going to see sort of a contrast start to happen from this point forward where previously, if you remember, we saw the turning of water into wine, this great celebration of Christ and his miracles. We saw this interaction with Nicodemus and 
woman at the well, and even the healing of the official son um, in chapter 4. And all of these sort of have positive responses to Christ, his ministry, his signs, to some extent. And really, in chapter 5 begins this whole other section where there starts to be conflict between Jesus and namely the religious leaders of the day, the Jews. And we'll see this conflict start to build throughout John's Gospel until the end where he's ultimately crucified and killed uh, on the cross. And so it's important that we kind of see that shift start to happen even now, that where Christ and his word were sort of accepted, you know, with the Samaritan woman and this revelation of who Christ is as the Messiah, there's going to start to be rejection, persecution, a desiring to kill Jesus that follows from this point forward. And so we'll sort of see this pattern as we go in through chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 even, where there'll be some sort of sign, right? This, this section of John, chapters 2 through 10, are what we call the book of signs. Because there's in those 8 to 10 chapters is seven signs that Jesus performs, starting with the water and the wine, ending with this climactic resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And so it's called the book of signs. And so we're going to come to the fourth sign here, but we'll see this pattern start to form where Jesus performs a sign, but the sign almost goes to the side a little bit. It's really not about this miracle that Jesus performed because soon a controversy will arise around a certain topic or a certain act or certain words that Jesus says or what day he performed those acts on. And then Jesus will use that as an opportunity to teach them about his identity, his person, his work. And so we'll see that pattern today, at least in part in our text, and we'll see it continue out through um, the remainder of these chapters. So, if you want to follow along with me, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18, and we're going to see this same pattern. We're going to see the sign, the healing of a crippled man. We're going to see a controversy arise with the religious leaders about the day that Jesus did this on. And then it's ultimately going to lead to a discussion from Jesus about his identity, his person, and his work. So, I'll read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, 
and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning tired, weary, heavy laden. And we come to your word that has many deep and profound things in it. And we pray this morning that you would give us understanding, that you would give us help by your Spirit to see with the eyes of faith, that this morning we would see the depths and riches of your Word that are able to be understood by young children, and yet are deep enough that the greatest minds can think on them for years and not fathom their riches. So this morning we pray that you would help us ponder, to think critically about what is written in your word, and ultimately, we would not just search the scriptures and look for great wisdom and truth, but that we would find Christ in them this morning, that you would help me to present Christ this morning, and that we would take hold with the eyes of faith. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you guys, I like movies that have a twist at the end. I don't know if you've ever seen The Sixth Sense, that's a famous one, In Night Shyamalan, who's in a bit of a rough patch now, if you ask me as a director. But there's, there's lots of movies. Christopher Nolan is famous for writing these movies where you go through the movie and you're thinking one thing and you're almost meant to think one thing, but at the end, something is revealed that causes you to reflect on the previous events in a different light, right? If you think about Inception, if you've ever seen that movie, there's all these layers of dreams, and this thing happens at the end, and there's this top spinning, no spoilers, hopefully, and, and it causes you to think about the rest of the movie in a different light and through a different lens. It's sort of a twist that causes you to reflect on the same events that you saw. They're not different events, but they it causes you to reflect on them in a different light. And that's sort of what we have here today, a very similar thing, where John, the writer of this gospel, presents a story, a, a historical account of what Jesus did in verses 1 through 9. And it can almost seem like a very regular event. We hear of lots of healings in the gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We, it's a very familiar event for us. And yet at the end of verse 9, he says these words, 
Now that day was the Sabbath. And that's where you're all supposed to gasp. <gasps> right? Nobody gasp. <laughs> it's meant to be shocking. And the, and the reason it's not shocking to us is because we're not living in first century um, Palestine. But that's what John is doing here. He's giving us an account of this miracle, this sign of the Christ, this thing that's going to point our eyes to the Savior. And yet there's this twist that he reveals at the end that's meant to reflect on and shed light on what has just happened and cause us to view it in a different light. And that's the way our Lord intends it. So we'll look at four things this morning. It's on your bulletin if you have it in front of you. First, we'll look at the setting of this sign in verses 1 through 3. Then we'll look at the sign itself. And then we'll look at the Sabbath and the controversy around the day on which this sign took place. And then finally, we look at these words of our Lord and his revelation of himself as the Son of God. So we'll look at the setting, the sign, the Sabbath, and the Son of God. Some nice alliteration there. So first, in verse 1, we get some of the setting here. It says that they were at a feast, a festival. And this begins, for those of you that like the structure of books, if you like to look at a book and kind of figure out its structure, this begins a new structure which is what many people call the festival cycle, where there's these festivals that are happening and throughout our gospel and John will see these different festivals that Jesus attends to. This one is not named, and that's probably because it doesn't matter in this case. We'll see later on that the festival will be named and it has direct connection to what Jesus did and the words that he said at that festival and feast as a fulfillment of those things, and we'll get to that later. But this one is unnamed. So this is taking place at Jerusalem. There would have been a lot of people in the city for this feast and festival. And we also see that there's a pool that is on, that is within the walls of the temple here called the Sheep Gate, or in Aramaic called Bethesda, which means House of Mercy which is very interesting. And this is where sheep would have been led through this gate. They would have been washed in this pool before they were to be sacrificed as an offering, as a sacrifice in the temple. And we see some of the layout of the land. There's colonnades, which is just simply columns that have a roof structure over the top of it. And this is where, for some reason, people would come that were injured or paralyzed, blind, lame, disabled. This is where they would congregate at this sheep pool. And you'll notice, if you look at um, John 5, verse 4. John 5, verse 4. you see it there? Huh. That was always a trick in my youth group. Get the kid to find John 5, verse 4. It's not there. Hmm. It goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. So most of you, if you have a, um, um, a Bible with footnotes at the bottom, it'll read something like this. That the earliest manuscripts don't contain verse, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, which read as this. So what verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting, so this is, the new, this is the part at the bottom of my Bible, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed 
of whatever disease he had. So that's very interesting. Why is that verse not in our scriptures? Why is it at the bottom or maybe not even in your Bible? And we'll see this again throughout John's Gospel, John, the end of John chapter 7 and chapter 8. There's an account there that might be a footnote in your Bible or maybe it has brackets around it. So this, this verse, John 5, 4, is missing from a lot of modern English translations. And you might have a note, like I said, that says this isn't found in the earliest manuscripts. So what does that mean? Well, this gets into a much bigger discussion, right, about how do we have the Bible that we have in front of us? I think some of us are so, and this is me, we're so used to having Amazon, you can literally order anything in the world and it be at your house in two days. <laughs> and we just sort of think, we don't even think about how our Bibles got here, why do we have the translations that we have? And this gets into a bigger discussion, like I said, about transmission and manuscripts and the history of the canon and how we got the scriptures and why we have what's in our Bible, why don't we have other things like apocryphal text or Gnostic Gospels or all these sorts of things. And I don't want to get into all that right now. We probably don't have time to do that. You can ask me questions after if you want. But in a lot of these passages, there's nothing in here that's necessarily unbiblical or rages against what we know as Orthodox Christianity. So there's, there's two different camps. Some people believe it should be in the scriptures. Some people believe that it's maybe a footnote or a marginal note that was added later on accident. If it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, maybe somebody wrote it in as an explanation of what was happening and it found its way into a copied manuscript later on. We might never know. But what we are confessing and what our confession says, and I just want to make this point, is that the scriptures have been providentially preserved in all ages. So what that means is we can trust what we have, that God is sovereign enough <laughs> to preserve his word, Amen. right? So he's able to preserve his word. We might not know. There might be one verse we might not be sure of. There's larger sections. And none of them are critical or, you know, totally change the meaning of the scriptures and the Bible itself. We believe that God's preserved his word. I think a good question to ask ourselves is, what did John write? And trying to figure out what that is. My personal position is that I think this is probably a superstitional, marginal note that was added later. It was to explain what was going on in the text. And you can kind of see why that would make sense. We don't really know why this man's here, why these other lame blind, paralyzed people are here, and even this man's response to Jesus, that he can't get to the pool, it sort of makes sense of why he would want to go to the pool there with this belief that the first person in the pool would be healed. So, we can talk about that later if you guys want, but, so that's the setting. There's this pool, people are believing, maybe superstitiously, that whoever gets in first will be healed. And we'll sort of see Jesus address this as we go. So then we come to the sign. So we've seen the setting, and now we need to look at the sign. That there's a man there that's been crippled for 38 years. He's paralyzed. He's totally invalid. He can't stand up. He would have had a mat or a bed that he would lay on, and people would carry him in his bed or his mat. It would have been a straw mat or something like that. This is a long time. I haven't even been alive for 38 years. I can't imagine being paralyzed, crippled for 38 years. 
And we see Jesus, he sees him, and he asks him a question. And the question almost seems unnecessary, almost insulting, the question that he asks him. But actually, we'll find that it gets to the heart of this man and the issue at hand. And the question Jesus asks him is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That can sound, like I said, almost insulting. This man's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's come to this pool to try to be healed. Duh, right? Duh, don't I want to be healed? I'm here, can't you see? And it's interesting, what does the sick man say to him? What does the injured, crippled man say? He doesn't say, yes, of course. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going in, someone steps in. So what is this man's focus? What is this man's focus on? It's not even necessarily on the important eternal things like forgiveness, salvation, that sort of healing. It's focused on this temporal healing that can come from the pool. Or to say it a different way, this question that Jesus asked not only exposes this man's superstition about the pool and what the pool can do for him, it also reveals what his whole hope is ultimately in. It's in this pool. It's in these sort of magical waters that he thinks are going to help him. And if he could just get in quick enough, if he could just have somebody take him there, then he would be healed and everything would be good. And I think that this question from Jesus exposes the heart of this man. And if we think about maybe, you know, an atheist or an unbeliever in your life, and if you were to ask them this question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to have joy and comfort in your life? What would they say? If I just had more money, if I just had more time, if I just had a better job, if I just had this or that, if I could just do here, if I could just go here, if I could, then I would be happy. Then I would be whole. Then I would have joy in my life. And as believers, we're even tempted to think like this. This sort of idea of believing in superstition over the spirit. Right? Believing in superstition over the spirit. We try to take situations into our own hands. Maybe there's not a pool that we are eager to get to, right? <laughs> but we can think like this in our heads. If I just read my Bible more, then Jesus will answer my prayer. If I just spend more time praying, then Jesus has to do this thing in my life. I remember, I have a very vivid memory of in about the fourth grade, I was at a basketball tournament, it was the championship game, and that whole week, I thought to myself, I said, if I read my Bible more this week, then I'll win the game. If I read my Bible more, that will help me win this game somehow. What does that have to do with playing basketball? Nothing. <laughs> but in my head, I thought, if I do this thing, then I will get this result. God either has to give it to me, or surely I'll have enough favor to win this game, or whatever it is. That is superstition. That's believing that this act will somehow give me this result, right? Don't step on a cracker or break your mother's back. Right? And it's very, that's a, but it's illustrating the same thing. This sort of mindset that I can take the situation in my own hands. If I do this, 
I will get this result. And that's sort of what this man is thinking. And Jesus cuts right through all this. He cuts through the superstition. He cuts through the pre-thoughts pre that this man has about the situation and how he can really be healed. And he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. <laughs> get up, take up your mat, and walk. Notice three things about what Jesus says. Notice the authority that Jesus speaks with. It's not a question. It's a command. Get up. This word of Christ creates the healing in this man. It almost presupposes that this healing is going to take place instantly. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. The authority. Also notice the great reversal that's happening here. As one commentator pointed out, Herman Ritterbos, he says this, It was once the bed that carried the man, now it's the man who carries his bed. It was once the bed that carried the man, now it's the man who carries his bed. This great reversal has happened. And thirdly, notice the glory of our Savior here. This is a real, bona fide miracle. No faking, no fanciful language around this event. This is a real, bona fide miracle. And notice what does John tell us at the end of his gospel. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have a life in his name. That this sign ultimately is not meant to point us to, you know, an example but it's meant to point us to Christ, that he's the one that's able to speak with authority in a word, in a second, in an instant. It says, at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed. There was no time delay. There was no period of waiting. It was instant. The man is healed, and he's meant to see this sign and see his Savior. But that's not what happened. So we come to the third section. Verse 9 says that this day was the Sabbath. That this day was the Sabbath. This is the great M. Night Shyamalan twist, right? This is the great twist that what was happening, what we just read and talked about, was on the Sabbath, the sixth day of the week, Saturday, for the Jewish people. Now, this word Sabbath comes from the word to cease or to rest. It's where we get the word sabbatical. If you've ever heard of a professor or someone taking a sabbatical, it's this time of ceasing from work, it's rest. And the Sabbath, as we've talked about before, ultimately begins with God, right? It doesn't begin in Exodus 20, as we read this morning. It begins with God. Because why? Six days, God worked, and on the seventh, God rested. So there's this pattern of six and one. God worked for six days, and he rested on the seventh. Did God get tired? <laughs> Did he need to rest? Was he out of breath from the six days of creation? No. <laughs> He's all-powerful. He can create in a single word. This was to show something. This Why did God need to rest? It was to show something to Adam and to Eve that this was to be a pattern for them and for all of mankind. Six days you are to work, one day you are to rest. 
And this was written down in the Ten Commandments, as we saw in our um, liturgy this morning. That this was written in the Ten Commandments, and you'll see it's based on creation, right? It doesn't just say, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, end of sentence. It says, for, because, in six days God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So that's the reason why we are to do that. We're to image God, and this is a pattern of work and rest and worship that God has set up. And then even further, in Israel, we see these positive civil commands that were added to this law and the punishments that came with those people that were living in the land. If you look at Exodus 35.2, we'll see that there were punishments that were severe for breaking the Sabbath. Just like there were a lot of punishments for blasphemy. We've talked about that um, in our series on Law and Gospel. If you wanted to turn there with me, just look at Exodus 35, 2. It says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord your God has commanded to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the Sabbath day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. And then it says this, Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Whoa. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. That the penalty, the punishment for breaking the Sabbath in Israel, in the land of Canaan, was death. And you'll remember this principle comes up with the people and manna coming down from heaven. Remember they're to collect for six days, but the seventh day they're to stop. And they're to collect double on the Sabbath, on the, on the day before, so they, they'll have enough for the Sabbath, so they don't have to go out and gather or cook their food. And because of this, there was a lot of laws around the Sabbath. And as those laws, sorry, let me say that this way. Because of this harsh penalty of death for breaking the Sabbath, legalism started to creep in to the Pharisees and the people of that day, where they would add laws to God's law in order to protect them from breaking the law. These were traditions and laws of men. And that's what legalism is. It is adding to God's law so that you don't break the real laws of God. And so they would do these things, they would add laws to God's law. And one of the laws that they added was this law that you cannot take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath day, that that was considered work. You cannot take up your mat and walk on the Sabbath day. That is considered work, and it is worthy of punishment. So this was not found in the law of God. You can't find this law in the Old Testament. This was a law that they created to protect themselves from breaking the law, which sounds good, right? It appears holy, it appears wise, and that's what legalism does. It appears holy. It appears wise. It has the appearance of wisdom, is what Paul says. But it has no help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what this law allowed people to do is start enforcing this. You can't take up your bed. You can't do this. You can't do that. And this is the day in which Jesus lived. That according to man's law, and not God's law, you could not carry a mat or bed. That, that was considered work. And it was a violation of the law of God, and we see that in verse 10, that the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, came to this man and they said, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
They're saying, you cannot do that. It's amazing because, notice, they're not amazed. They're not amazed at this miracle. A man who was paralyzed for 38 years was just healed in an instant. They should be saying, how is this possible? Who is it that did this? But they're not amazed. They're angry. They're raging. That their man-made traditions and laws have been broken, and they want to know, who told you you could do this? Who told you you could take up your mat and walk? We'll see the man. He says, I don't know. It was this man. This guy told me to do it. He's almost kind of shifting the blame a little bit. He says, that man, the one who healed me, he told me, take up my bed and walk. And so we can see here sort of the heart of legalism. These people don't care that this man was just healed from his helpless condition. He was stuck to lay on his mat for 38 years. He's just been helped out of this condition. And all they can think about is this man-made tradition and law that he's violated. As Jesus will say in the Gospel of Matthew, that these Pharisees ignored the weightier matters of the law. They would tie their mint, they would tie their cumin, but they ignored the weightier matters of the law. As he'll say in the book of Mark, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That these religious leaders had misunderstood the law and the intention of the law. That the law of the Sabbath always allowed for works of necessity and works of mercy. This is what Jesus was doing. It was a great act of mercy that he would heal this man and cause him to walk when he had not walked in 38 years. And it's just, you th you're just scratching your head. This man can now walk, and they're concerned about this straw mat that he made them. This great miracle is performed, and they could care less about the mercy of God. So, all that to say, Jesus is not here violating the Sabbath. I've heard pastors say before when teaching on the Sabbath, and teaching on this passage, that Jesus broke the Sabbath. He was showing people why he could break the Sabbath. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus was not a Sabbath breaker. He did not here break the Sabbath, but instead performed an act of mercy for this man and upholds the law of God because he is the perfect son of God who cannot break God's law. And then we come to this interesting section in verses 14 through the end where Jesus has an interaction with this man, this man that's just been healed. And he says these words to him. He finds him in the temple and he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. There's a lot of debate about what is Jesus saying here? Is he sort of, you know, encouraging this man that he's now a believer and he's encouraging him to go and sin no more? Is he sort of threatening him with these kind of like, um, you know, what is it, karma? Like if you, if you keep sinning, bad stuff's going to happen to you. What is it? What is Jesus doing here? I think what Jesus is saying here is, I've healed you physically. I made your body well in a second. I healed you physically, 
but you are still crippled spiritually. That this man, we don't see any gratitude, as one pastor said. We don't see any thanks for, for what God did in Christ. We don't see any change or repentance. And in fact, he just keeps going back to the religious leaders and saying, this guy did it. He told me to do it. Look, there's, you know, he's only pointing them back to Jesus, not to worship him, but to almost persecute him. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is saying, I've healed you physically, but you still need to be healed spiritually. I've made the outside of your body well, but there's still an internal problem, and you should not sin. Sin only brings death, and I think we'll see that as we see the verse move on. But ultimately, what this man tells the religious leaders causes this great reaction from them. He tells them, I know who healed me. I know who told me to pick up my mat and walk. It was Jesus. And we find that after he tells the Jews that this brings great persecution on Christ. In verse 16, we see that. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says these words to answer them. This is his answer to their persecution, to their charges. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. They are bringing a charge against Jesus. They're saying, you worked on the Sabbath. You sinned, you violated the law of God, and these are the charges that we're bringing to you. And all Jesus would have to say is explain himself. All he'd have to say is, no, I wasn't working. Let me show you how the law says there's acts of mercy, acts of necessity. I didn't break the law of God. Let me show you. But I think Jesus knew that that would not work, that they would not be satisfied by his explanation. And as we'll see throughout John's gospel, Jesus doesn't shrink back. He doesn't concede when people attack him. He doesn't try to reason with these unbelieving Pharisees. He actually elevates the situation. He actually takes it a level up. He presses in to the real issue. The real issue is not whether he broke the Sabbath or not. And Jesus says these words, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. We see that Jesus' words are not just a claim on what he was doing, but it's a claim on him, who he is, on his identity. He uses these words, my father. That not only do they see his words as Sabbath-breaking, but ultimately as blasphemy. That in their eyes, Jesus saying, my father is to make himself equal with God, to call God his own father. And because of this, these religious leaders want to kill him. Not only has he broken the Sabbath according to their man-made laws, but he has made himself equal with God. And Jesus' words are what aggravate this. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. What is Jesus saying here? This is a very cryptic <laughs> phrase. I mean, we can admit it. What is he talking about? 
They're accusing him of working, and he says, My father's working, and I myself am working. Jesus here is revealing himself as the unique, eternally begotten Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. That the Father has been working, and now the Son is working. In what sense? Creation was a work of God, right? It was this great work of God, and then he ceased from that work, right? He worked, and then he ceased from that work. But the Lord is still working now in his acts of providence, that he has not stopped working in creation. We don't believe in some deistic God that just simply wound up the the clock of history and left the world to go. But he is continuing to work in his creation through his providence. That he's working in creation, that he is governing, upholding the universe by the world word of his power, that ever since creation, the triune God has been preserving and upholding that which he created. And so Jesus is saying, I'm one with him. My father has been working as the triune God. I myself am working. Colossians says he upholds the, the or sorry, Hebrew says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians says he holds all things together. That if God was to stop working, was he to cease from this work of providence, the universe itself would cease to exist, right? Have you ever thought about that? That the God of the world holds the universe together right now. That's an amazing thing to think about. And so this is what Jesus is claiming. This is a claim to divinity. This is a claim to be equal with God. This is his revelation of himself as the Son of God. 